Bitcoin can change the world or it can change the rulers, right? It can change the rules or it can change the rulers, but not both. And we have to choose. I want it to change the rules. Welcome back to Beyond the Price, the podcast that goes beyond the flashing numbers to explore how Bitcoin fits into the global economy and how real people and real companies are actually using it, especially in Asia. On the show today is Mi Primera Bitcoin, or My First Bitcoin in English, which is a Bitcoin educational nonprofit that started in El Salvador but is quickly spreading throughout the world with its open source curriculum. Their growth in the El Salvador school system has been explosive, and they offer a model that anyone in the world can replicate. So I was really excited to talk with them, especially as you may remember Teruko a few weeks ago mentioned she's helping translate their curriculum into Japanese, and will be launching a Japanese podcast based on it. They do a really good job of teaching people not just about Bitcoin, but about the modern financial system, because you can't understand potential solutions without understanding the problems. And as my guests point out in this conversation, everyone feels the problems, but not everyone knows that they stem from the fiat monetary system. But first, upcoming events this month are on February 20 in Taiwan. We have a Taiwan BitDevs meetup with the CEO of Albi. On March 1st in Tokyo, we have a Bitcoin Lab custody workshop. And then the very next day, March 2nd in Tokyo, we have Diamond Hands' Lightning Market in Jiugaoka. So get your Lightning wallets and head down there to buy some stuff. And then on March 6th in Tokyo, we have a Bitcoin and Lightning workshop for developers. You can find details and links on the calendar page at beyondtheprice.substack.com. And be sure to let me know if you're hosting an event in Asia that you'd like me to mention. Okay, my guests today are John Dennehy, founder and executive director, and Adam Neely, COO of My First Bitcoin. We talk about John's background as a journalist and protester, launching a Bitcoin educational organization after El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender, how adoption in El Salvador is going, and what lessons it offers other communities and countries, how My First Bitcoin has modeled their organization after Bitcoin in the sense of having rules, not rulers, so that anyone can join what they're doing and much more. This conversation pumped me up, so I hope it has the same effect on you. As always, let me know what you think by leaving a comment on Fountain or emailing me at beyondtheprice at substack.com, and I hope you enjoy. John Dennehy and Adam Neely of Mi Premier Bitcoin, my first Bitcoin. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Awesome. Brad, thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I'm excited for this, uh, not only because we've been kind of talking about it for a while, but uh, because you guys are kind of on the front lines of adoption. I think you you use that line on your website. Um, so I, I think there's a lot that you can uh, teach me about uh, about uh, what it's like to introduce people to Bitcoin and uh, what kind of things really appeal to people, what kind of approaches maybe don't work so well. So I'm excited. but uh, to kick things off, I'd love to hear just some background from you guys, how you came to find yourself uh, heading up a, a Bitcoin education company. So maybe starting with you, John, um, what's your backstory? Um, yeah, this is always a always an interesting question, right? Like how, how deep to go into this. Uh, so I'm from New York. Um, my background is I was a journalist before this living in New York, traveling abroad to, to do journalism and a Bitcoiner for uh, since 2013. Um, just really interested in how Bitcoin could change the future shape of the world, 
right? So when El Salvador announced that they were making it legal tender, then it seemed a good opportunity to put some theory into practice. Um, yeah, so I've been here two and a half years. I moved down here in August of 2021, so one month before the law went into effect. Was that, did you move because of the, you knew the um, Bitcoin law was coming or uh, did you move actually before that? No, I moved 100% for Bitcoin. I, so, you know, the, the announcement of the law was in June and the law was actually passed in June. So it was announced and passed in the same week in June. And then there was a 90 day window to when it went into effect, which was in September then in 2021. Um, after a couple of days of shock to be like, wait, is this really happening? Then I basically got my stuff together. I sold all my, all my possessions and started thinking about how, um, you know, like what would be needed in this new world uh, and then moved down to El Salvador with one-way ticket. That's incredible. How familiar were you with the region before you moved to El Salvador? Pretty familiar. So that helped. Um, I had, I, I just love Latin America. It's, it, I had previously lived in Ecuador. That's kind of my home away from home. So I lived there for about five years. Um, I lived for shorter periods of time or traveled extensively in, in Colombia, Nicaragua. I was actually in El Salvador for literally two days in 2008, I guess, when I was living in Nicaragua. I just had a flight from here. Um, so I was familiar with, with the region already. And actually, one of the things that I love about Latin America is that it has such strong social movements. Hmm. And I've always thought of Bitcoin as a social movement. Um, so just like, yeah, that the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender would be in Latin America. It just is, is beautiful. I love that. How long was it from when you moved down here to when you had the idea and like a really concrete conception of what you wanted to do with, uh, with my first Bitcoin? So I came down here with with the idea, with the name, with the website, with the vision and mission worked out. That was like from from June to August in those two months. Um, I did a lot of work on that. I kind of actually earlier in 2021, a bit of a precursor when I was living in Ecuador, then I um, had a failed attempt to try to work on community-led Bitcoin education. Uh, pandemic was still going on, uh, so the in-person model wasn't, wasn't the right time, wasn't the right place. Um, but yeah, I came down to El Salvador with a very loose plan. Uh, and I, I actually thought that there was a pretty high probability that it wouldn't work out and that there would be tons of other stuff happening that was you know, worthy of, 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 uh, of my time and energy that I could just, you know, if this fails then I'm sure there's going to be something else cool to, to jump into. Um, but yeah, it's actually been, a you know, I guess we'll talk about this in the, in the pod, but it's been a wild success, right? So there's, there's no, there's no, you know, there's been a lot of evolution of it, right? It was, it, it was an idea, then now it's a reality. So there's been a lot of uh, uh, theory and, and reality are, are 
are infrequently aligned, right? So there's been a lot of evolution since since those first days. It strikes me that a lot of people had the same or similar information that you did, like hearing about El Salvador uh, introducing this Bitcoin law, um, maybe having heard about Bitcoin a few times before, or or maybe they were already into it. But what do you think? What what were the drivers uh, up until that point in your life that resulted in in you actually being the one to to make this huge move, uh, start this company? Like, uh, were there certain experiences up until that point that really played into that uh, that decision? Yeah, um, I mean, we all have we all have our our own journeys, right? So I. <laughs> I have been a political activist for my entire adult life. Um, you know, I when I was 19 years old, then I was getting arrested trying to shut down IMF meetings in Washington D.C. Uh, so wow. that that is something that that's kind of been with me for for a while before that, which is what drew me to Bitcoin in the first place. You know, the separation of money and state, um, and taking power away from centralized institutions and the ability to give it back to the people is an idea that appealed to me pre-Bitcoin, right? So, um, you know, with with Bitcoin, I think everyone has to go through a journey of understanding the problem before they could see the solution. Uh, and even though Bitcoin is new, like the problem is old, right? The problem is concentration of power. The problem is corruption. The problem is is a broken incentive system. And that was something that I was pushing against pre-Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, uh, the fact that I had previously lived in Latin America was made it easier for me to come to El Salvador. Uh, the fact that I had traveled pretty extensively for my work, um, made it much easier for me than the average person to quote unquote, like quit my job sell my stuff and, and move like that wasn't the first time I had done something like that. So that made it easier for me. Um, and I had been involved with social movements before, uh, you know, like Occupy Wall Street in, in New York and and just some movements in, in Ecuador and and even back into my university days in the United States. So so there was some like baseline there already uh, among all these various strands that I had a little bit of experience that made me a little bit, I don't know, more willing to take a risk. Um, just that prior experience probably would make the risk seem bigger for other people than it seemed for me. Mm -hmm. I want to ask a lot more about, uh, about protests and, and getting arrested. But, uh, but Adam, how about you? How did you come to be involved in uh, my first Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, mine is a, is a fun journey. Um, I was working on a project with a presidential agency here in Colombia, the country, to bring Bitcoin education to the university system here. And I had been based in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, where I was kind of flying around the world looking at different educational organizations and curricula 
And my first Bitcoin showed up on my Twitter feed. And so I reached out and said, hey, guys, I'm planning a trip to El Salvador. A few weeks later, I landed in El Zante in, in Bitcoin Beach and um, just kind of met with various people there, met with John, saw a class in person, which was a surreal life experience for me because I was seated in this rickety old, you know, wooden chair watching a teacher teach other teachers and students how to use Bitcoin. And there was the Ministry of Education insignia, and there was Bitcoin, the Bitcoin logo, and they were side by side. And I was seated there, seated in, in, that, in that chair, and I was like, wow, you know, this is an idea whose time has come. And this is the place. This is the place where I think, you know, the revolution will begin. And so, uh, you know, after meeting John and, and speaking with him and getting to know him, um, you know, I, I felt very strongly that this was a mission that I wanted to support. So, you know, one kind of early announcement, I guess we can make it here on the podcast, is that we'll be bringing the My First Bitcoin curriculum to a university in Columbia this year. And this all started as, you know, me looking out at the world, looking at who the best uh, organizations were, what their curriculum looked like, and, and really wanting to bring um, that curriculum back uh, and scale it at a, at a very, very large level. So uh, we're really excited uh, about where this is going. And it's a little bit about me. <laughs> is, is this the first uh, university version of the curriculum? Yeah, yeah. Well, so in, in, yeah, it is. And it's, it's been under development for uh, the last six months or so. Um, and it's going to be exciting to unveil it to the world. In El Salvador, uh, so far, you've been teaching younger uh, age groups? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I mean, I still don't know how many people know this. I think this is probably the biggest news that came out of 2023, at least in my opinion. But you know, my first Bitcoin signing an MOU with the Ministry of Education in El Salvador, uh, along with Bitcoin Beach to help train public school teachers, right? 150 public school teachers are being trained to bring the Bitcoin diploma by my first Bitcoin back into the public school system. And I think that's just such massive news and a sign of things to come. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. How I imagine it's been, I mean, game changing that El Salvador uh, made Bitcoin legal tender. Um, but just how much of of a of an advantage is that compared to a country like Colombia, where um, the need may be there, but there's not the same government buy-in? So the need is definitely there. Um... And I think the need exists to, to varying degrees, right? Like, you know, looking at debt to, to GDP ratios for different countries is a really interesting story. You know, you have places like Japan where, you know, the debt is three times higher than the, the GDP, right? Yeah. I think that that is the story of a country 
that maybe needs the arc that Bitcoin is a little bit more desperately than certain countries, maybe like Switzerland, right? Which appear to be more, more stable. Um, if you think of kind of the impending monetary scenario, of, you know, unfettered money printing, runaway debt and deficit spending as the, the problem or the flood, then you, I think then you're really prepared to see Bitcoin as the arc. And the debt to GDP combined with the demographic curve of the country kind of tells you how desperately that country needs the solution that Bitcoin is. Hmm. In Colombia, um, you know, things, things here, you know, are, are changing. Um, we have an open, uh, we, have, we have very high levels of openness to, to things that are new things that are technology um, based. And so I think, you know, another, another factor here is that the more governments understand, or at least private entities understand how valuable Bitcoin can be uh, from an energy perspective, um, the more open they are to implementing those solutions and help scaling them across the country. So I think, you know, if you reordered the world in terms of water uh, or hydroelectric energy potential, Colombia would be number nine. And they understand. Oh, really? That. Yeah. And, and they understand that. And so the way to help certain entities understand the value that Bitcoin represents for them is helping, you know, share what's in it for them. Um, and. And once they see that and they see this kind of competitive game that's, that's taking shape, uh, they're more willing and more, more open to take action. This is a question I was going to ask later, but uh, I think it's, it's relevant now. Um, we see a lot of countries, most countries have their own currencies, and I think they value that very highly, the ability to print their own currency for a small group in power to to have uh, such an enormous control over the, the purse strings. Um, but in some countries, we've seen them dollarize, so they no longer have control of their own currency. Um, I think that's, that's helped in cases where you had corrupt governments um, kind of printing money for, for their own uh, needs, or even, even if it was for the population still having rampant inflation. Um, and that was the case with El Salvador, where they were dollarized, uh, and then they uh, made Bitcoin legal tender, where now not only is the currency controlled by another country, but it's it's not controlled by any country. Um, do you think that uh, the country has to be dollarized for it to be open to adopting Bitcoin as legal tender? Like, does it does it already need to not have control of its own currency? Or, or do you think we could actually see um, countries with their own currencies uh, being open to Bitcoin as a, as a competing currency or, or even a, a better alternative? I think it would be rare for that to happen just because the incentives don't align, right? There's mm -hmm. exceptions to everything. But by and large, people that control their own money, governments that control their own money are not incentivized to give that up, right? They give it up because they have to. Uh, so 
I think countries that, you know, a lot of countries have dollarized, right? There's, um, there's a number of countries just in Latin America. So that's, uh, Ecuador is also dollarized Panama. Hmm. Um, so they're likely candidates. They don't have that first barrier that other countries have, but then other countries, again, staying here in Latin America, Venezuela and Argentina, their currencies are terrible. Right. And there's, there's even a recognition among the governments of those countries, how bad their own currency is. So there's not an official dollarization, but there's a de facto dollarization in both of those countries uh, that has been happening over over a series of years, right? In Argentina, even longer. But even the Venezuelan government, which is about as restrictive as, as it gets, they uh, they basically have allowed dollarization in their country because they they just recognize that as much as it hurts them then they they have no choice they're forced into that so i think that bitcoin could be an alternative to that or maybe not an alternative as a first step maybe eventually but uh, before then as in addition to allowing a de facto dollarization a de facto Bitcoin as legal tender. I, I don't know how many countries are going to adapt Bitcoin as legal tender. I think that there might be some that kind of throw up their arms and say like, well, we can't stop this. So should we just let it happen? Which is, again, effectively what's happening in Venezuela and Argentina with dollarization. I think that might be the next trend, like a de facto alongside dollarization or alongside i don't know what the terminology is but there's i think there's some countries that have adopted the euro as well i think there's 14 countries that have dollarized and like two or three that have adopted the euro and i expect that to to go up like all fiat currencies will fail right i think the dollar is going to be one of the last ones like as as, mm-hmm. as bad as the dollar is it's it's better than almost all the other fiat currencies uh, which is why people rush to the dollar, and then after the dollar is Bitcoin. But I think there might be a time when people are going to both, and I think we're probably fairly close to. Effectively, that is Argentina now, right? There, people are going to go to dollars and Bitcoin simultaneously. Yeah, I did want to ask about El Salvador because uh, I mean, I've I've never even been to Latin America, so I really have no idea what life is like anywhere in the region, but certainly not in El Salvador. But uh, they're making Bitcoin legal tender was such a uh, such a, um, a strong move so early, like even several years later, no other country has has really followed in its footsteps. And uh, at the time and even now, there there was a lot of support. There was also a lot of criticism. Um, how would you say it's gone in general so far uh, over the past few years. Uh, yeah, I think that it's gone as well as anyone could have expected, right? There's there's criticism that it's like, well, not everybody uses Bitcoin, so it's a failure. Um, and the reality is that the majority of people don't use Bitcoin. But more important than that is that Two and a half years ago, outside of Bitcoin Beach, outside of El Zante, Bitcoin adoption, Bitcoin knowledge was very, very close to zero. Hmm. 
so now that maybe you know it depends how how you measure um this but let's just say a nice round number and this is in the range so the range is probably five to twenty percent of people in el salvador are um well informed and regularly use bitcoin right so i'll just use the number 10 it's in that range to go from nearly zero to 10 in two and a half years during a bear market is crazy right that is that is very positive like to expect more than that would not be realistic i don't think Hmm. um i think the real test i mean there's a number of tests, right? So the first test is, is maybe over. Um, and I think El Salvador has done well. Uh, the second test is probably starting around now, right? Now that there's this base, now that the first movers are in and the bear market's over, what happens now? How does that, how does that trajectory grow, right? Do, do we go from, we've gone from zero to one, right? So now we're going from one to two. So it's kind of a different, um, different playing field. Uh, so and and um, I think that zero to one is the hardest, and that that has passed. So um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty bullish on the future of of Bitcoin here in El Salvador. Yeah. Speaking of going from one to two, uh, President Bukele was just reelected. What's the, I mean, I, I hate to use the term national mood, but um, well, yeah, what, what is, how, how are people reacting to that in general? Um, because it's hard to know what to believe from, from outside of the country. Um, so what's it like there? And uh, then what's your, what's your view of, of uh, how things are going to go in, in this coming term? Yeah. Um... So the the re-election didn't change that much just because it was basically a foregone conclusion, right? This wasn't like people weren't like, oh, is he, is, will he, won't he, right? There, there was none of that. Uh, maybe the margin of victory was in question, um, although it was basically in line with what the, what the opinion polls were ahead of time. Which, by the way, it was like massive. It was he got eighty five percent of the vote. Second place got six percent, which is like mind blowing. Um, yeah. So there is fifteen percent of the country that voted for someone else, and that's real. There, uh, there is some people that aren't um, in love with the president, but eighty five did, and that that's really what what you see out on the street, like there were tons of fireworks in the days after the, after the election. There's a lot of fireworks generally in El Salvador, but especially (laughs) in those days, um, there were a lot of fireworks, which is usually like a sign of celebration. Right. Um, So people are, people are happy about it, but again, from one week before to one week after, not that much has changed. Uh, which I think is a good thing because one week before the election, people were pretty optimistic about the future. One week after, people are pretty optimistic about the future. I don't know how much the election really influenced that. Um, I think that's one of the great things about El Salvador. A rare thing. This is the exception of the rule in 2024. Uh, 
people here, whether it's Salvadorians uh, or whether it's people like my, myself or Adam who were not born here but have come here, are optimistic about the future, right? We think that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And that is unfortunately rare in the world, right? Most places, I'm from the U.S., that is not the vibe in the U.S. right now. It's quite the opposite. They think tomorrow is going to be worse than today. They fear the future. Here, they can't yeah. wait for it, right? And that changes everything. That changes, like, this is the place, right? Like Adam said before, this is an idea whose time has come. This is the right time, and this is the right place, right? Because this is where you can build something. Um, and it's not just El Salvador. There are there are pockets of this everywhere, which is why maybe we'll get into the node network later. And and like there are pockets emerging of this everywhere. But El Salvador is a great place to look into the future, to build something that is, you know, has a has a low time preference. Yeah, as much as I love Japan, I can't say that uh that i think the tomorrow's gonna be better than today uh, i think uh it could be if they if they make some changes but i don't think that's our current trajectory so that's uh that's really interesting and uh encouraging to hear you say that um let's say hypothetically that uh that a, a different leader did come into power do you think bitcoin adoption in el salvador is at the point where uh, it has um, enough momentum, uh, enough acceptance to continue. Like enough people recognize, okay, this is a, this is something that's good for the country. Or do you think it's going to take uh, a few more years to to get to that point? Uh, Adam, do you want to take this one? You want me to take it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think the momentum is is definitely there. I think you know we're on this this kind of gradually then suddenly kind of growth curve certain things like the bull market will help accelerate interest in bitcoin other things uh will accelerate bitcoin interest and i think you know the the problem that we're we're really looking to to solve stated really simply is we're trying to wake the world up right and john said it earlier if you don't if you don't, you know, know the problem, you'll never recognize the solution. So the the Bitcoin diploma really is just a universal tool to help people see the problem, right? Understand the solution. Because the more people that, that get on that same page that see Bitcoin as an arc for the impending flood, the the faster we get to a world where this tool called money, right, which just helps society communicate which goods and services have value, which has been been manipulated throughout history, right? Like solving that problem creates a totally different world. We've never had that world before. We've never had a world where money was not manipulated by, by humans, where it was not subject to human nature. And so if you think about it, by creating a better form or perfect form of money and taking that power out of the hands of, of man, we create a, a trustless world, right? One where we don't have to trust that man will do the wrong, right thing, 
but rather one where man is unable to do the wrong thing. And that is a fundamentally different world. So the more we're able to get people on the same page and really just see the problem and be able to state it simply and understand the solution to the problem, we think the faster that movement will, will occur. Um, so the, moment, the momentum is there currently. I'd say we're growing linearly and we're about to grow exponentially. And I know John probably has a few thoughts on this, you know, related to the node network and the way that really, you know, if you, if you didn't know my first Bitcoin, you'd never heard of us before, you probably thought of us as like an, we're an NGO based in El Salvador providing free, impartial, independent education to students and teachers and organizations in El Salvador. But the transformation that's occurred over the last year has really been about growing a presence in multiple countries so that we can accelerate the timeline even further by taking lessons from the Bitcoin protocol itself, by creating a system of rules and not rulers, by coming to consensus with various teachers and communities and organizations across the world to help them see that problem and understand that solution. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to piggyback on that because um, I love, I love that, that line that Adam said at the end there, rules, not rulers. Uh, and call back from earlier, that was, you know, like I have uh, probably would self-identify as an anarchist from, from back in my protest days. And, and that was one of the, one of the slogans that I always loved was rules, not rulers, right? Which predates Bitcoin, but now there's like a way to really do it, right? It's not just an idea. There's a way that we could actually do it. So to the question of, you know, if an election result went a different way, a different candidate, <sighs> rules, not rulers. If we need a certain government, a certain leader, a certain election result in order for Bitcoin to succeed, then we have failed, right? Mm -hmm. And like, it's really great. And I'm so thankful and appreciative that there is an environment here in El Salvador that is friendly to, to this growth of, of the next world that's coming. But if we ever need it, then it means that we failed, right? Like it's helpful, but we can never rely on it. We can never be dependent on it. Yeah, that's a powerful message. Um, I want to ask more specifically about your curriculum, because uh, I think probably a lot of people, especially here in Asia, won't be very familiar. Um, but in the context of, of what you've been talking about so far, um, how do you take people from um, either no understanding of Bitcoin or uh, what is is so common, um, just thinking of it as like some kind of digital asset or internet plaything that uh, you can maybe make more fiat off of it uh, if you're lucky, but uh, but probably not best to just stay away. Um, how do you take people from that to the understanding that that you guys have just articulated? We show them, right? So w one of the philosophies that we try to employ as much as possible is show, don't tell. Hmm. So we show them that there's a problem and that there's a solution and we let them come to their own conclusions. But like, 
proper information and education, um, I'm pretty confident that most people will arrive at the same path, which is that the one that we are the the same conclusion, which is that the path that we are on is unsustainable and there is an alternative. So just an example of that, we we often send sats to people right over over lightning, whether it's at a meetup or in a class, um, or even if it's just like just an individual that that you know I ask if they accept Bitcoin and they're like, how can I do that? Um, but you send them, you send them some sats, you know, you download a wallet. This is the procedure for most people who have no exposure to Bitcoin. You download a wallet on your phone. One minute later, someone sends you value, right? That's it, right? There's no, you don't have to put your fingerprints in, like name your first child after it, like uh, scan your passport, uh, even give your name at all. Right. It depends which wallet you're using, but I'm, I'm talking about non-KYC options. Um, and then you send that value. And here in El Salvador, like you can spend Bitcoin. You can turn it into dollars at an ATM if you wanted to. Uh, so so people see that that off ramp and then they realize that. One, they they realize, wow, that was easy. And two, they realize. wait we didn't need permission to do this because we're so used to living in a world and and here in El Salvador so um oh it's funny i'm forgetting the english word remesas uh sending money across borders is oh it, remittances remittances yeah <laughs> remittances so remittances make up 26% of the gdp which wow. is like massive right so this is this is something that people are very familiar with uh it's mostly coming from like north america to 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 el salvador but also it's going from el salvador to a place like venezuela or nicaragua uh, which has a worse economy and a lot of restrictions and and it's people already know the problems of fiat you just have to shine a flashlight on it right and and Hmm. and show them People don't recognize that there's a problem until they see that there's an alternative, right? So people are like, they're used to dealing with the problems of fiat, but they don't see it as a problem. They're like, yeah, it's tough to send money across borders. That's just how it is, right? But then once you show them like, no, we didn't need permission. You could have been anywhere in the world and the transaction would have been exactly the same. And they're like, wait a second. Why isn't it always like that? Right? Why isn't it always like that? So it's so you you show people and then uh, what the hope is, is that people continue that journey, right? They just need like a spark, right? Again, zero to one is the hardest thing. Hmm. But once you could provide that spark, then it's like, wait a second. Maybe I shouldn't have assumed all these other things like, wait. So yeah, it's providing that spark by showing them. I I love that. Can I piggyback on something for a second there? Okay, because what what you said is is absolutely, you know, show don't tell. Another thing is we don't we haven't designed another curriculum that's intended to be a marketing funnel to an exchange. We're not trying to build Binance Academy 2.0. 
you can go on Binance and you can waste hours of your life learning how to trade Dogecoin, right? We're highly uninterested in that. What we, what we are building and what the world we think needs is a grassroots, community-led, educational tool that can empower people. We don't teach people the right answers, right? We teach them how to ask the right questions by sharing with them history. History is kind of hard to argue with because you can triangulate from multiple different, po multiple different points. Once you understand things like Executive Order 6102, once you understand things like how the monetary system works, how our debt-based system works, and then you go up, you pull up usdebtclock.org and you look at all the countries and you look at the debt to GDP and you start to, to put these pieces together, you see something that you can't unsee, right? And, and our, our goal, right, is we think an education needs to remain independent and impartial. Um, you know, that will lead to challenges, you know, in the initial phase, because a lot of sponsors want to put their name on something and, and have you direct back to their, their exchange or their product. Um, but I think, though, once you see the true intention of, of my first Bitcoin as this open source education for the world, right, this toolkit that can then be translated into multiple different languages and taught by communities in their own regional context, it's kind of something you can't unsee. And it's, it's something that once we find sponsor and donor alignment on, um, those are the people that, that, um, that we're going to partner with for the duration. And we're not building something for a year or two years. We're looking out generations here. And, and so the right sponsors realize what it is that we're doing and they're eager to partner and the wrong ones almost by this filter system kind of stay away. Right. It's like, Oh, you're not interested in doing what I want you to do. It's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. This, this is a, this is a revolution, right? This isn't about Bitcoin adoption. This is about changing the future course of humanity, right? Bitcoin adoption, I think, is a means to an end, but it is not the end, right? The end is not that the price of Bitcoin is higher and uh, Bitcoin companies are behemoths, right? That is That is just the world that we already have with a different face, right? That's the same order with a different ruler, with a different set of rulers. And that's the danger. The danger is not failure. I think, and this is true for Bitcoin as well as me Premier Bitcoin. And, and, and a lot of things are true for Bitcoin and me Premier Bitcoin because me Premier Bitcoin is, is, is built to mimic Bitcoin as much as possible. So the danger for both is not failure. It is co-option, right? Um, this isn't, this is, we have such a rare opportunity and I don't like, this isn't an opportunity, you know, that comes along once in a lifetime or once in a generation. This is, I actually believe the first time in human history in human civilization that we've had this opportunity to not change who wields power, but change our very relationship with power, right? And, and that, 
that we completely lose that opportunity if we just transfer power from one set to another, right? Which is which is a danger, which is the biggest danger with with Bitcoin, right? It's going to change. Bitcoin can change the world or it can change the rulers, right? It can change the rules or it can change the rulers, but not both. And we have to choose. I want it to change the rules. I have to ask, I, uh, I suspect I know your answer, but uh, what do you think of the Bitcoin ETFs in, in light of that? Um, I'll, go, I'll go first here. I'm sure Adam has some, some great insights here too. But uh, personally, I don't like them. But it's the same. It's kind of the same answer as, as governments, right? Like, they can't be a danger to, to Bitcoin. Um, if we have to think that, you know, Bitcoin, I said before, if we need a certain government or a certain leader, a certain election result for, for Bitcoin to succeed, then we have failed. It's the same, it's the same answer with different word in, different words here, right? Different details. Um, if we need to protect Bitcoin from modern financial instruments in order for it to succeed, then it's failed, right? Then, then that's a rather weak revolution that we need to protect it from, from, from the world, right? It, 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 it will sooner or later um, interact with these instruments, with these entities, and. I have faith that it is strong enough to come out the other side. Again, the danger is not failure. The danger is co-option, hmm. right? But I, I, I think that Bitcoin was very uh, intelligently designed and has evolved in such a way that it won't be co-opted by this. ETFs will be co-opted by Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin co-opted by ETFs, right? Really like that answer. I mean, a, a simple answer for me would be, you know, good for NGU, bad for FGU, right? Good for, for number to go up, bad for freedom go up. And which is ultimately the latter one is the one that we care about and are working toward. And that's the world we want to see. I really like John's response about how, you know, if Bitcoin isn't strong enough to make it through this, then maybe it's not the, the right solution. I think that's a great nuanced point. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think to, to a degree, this was always going to happen, right? This is an outcome of success, right? Um, so now, now we're going to see kind of, you know, a, a world where you have something become heavily financialized that was intended to be peer-to-peer -peer digital cash. I, I haven't done enough deep thinking to think about what that looks like and how that's going to change uh, things. I do think, you know, maybe one positive thing, one positive outcome from this is that, you know, all of a sudden that gradually from suddenly moment, right? That, that point where you, you go near, near vertical is, is possibly sooner. I think you'll see a lot of attention come into the space and maybe even, um, we have an opportunity to capture some of that attention and, and direct it, uh, toward more of the, the philosophy of Bitcoin right? Instead of just the financial side of it. Hmm. Let's talk about the node network. 
what's your plan for, I mean, you're already taking it beyond El Salvador. I think I saw you have something like 28 uh, locations around the world, but uh, what is, what is uh, the expansion of, of the, my first Bitcoin curriculum going to look like, uh, especially if you have any specific thoughts on uh, Asia? Um, yeah. So, I mean, the no network is super exciting. Adam had mentioned it earlier that uh, I think people might underestimate the the impact, the potential impact of Bitcoin. And again, this is something similar to Bitcoin, right? I think that's one of the strengths of Bitcoin is it took people a long time to realize it took the wrong people a long time to realize how big Bitcoin was going to be. Um, and I think it's the same. Right, we're, 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 we're trying to learn from Bitcoin again there. Uh, so the node network is a network of Bitcoin educators around the world that agreed to a set of core principles, and that is that the education must be Bitcoin-only, independent, impartial, community-led, quality, and teach empowerment. So long as you agree to those six principles, and and you're active, right? You're actually like, again, not theory, but theory mixed with with proof of work. As long as those six plus proof of work, then then you could join the network. Um, and the purpose of the network is to speed up the timeline and to create resiliency around the world, right? So. There are so now there are 29 nodes in 22 countries, and that's pretty, pretty well uh, geographically distributed around the world. Um, and there are, you know, Meet from Red Bitcoin is doing amazing stuff in El Salvador. There's also many other frontline revolutionary educators around the world doing amazing stuff, right? There's pockets. Of, of this new world that's emerging all over the world. And we would like to make it as easy as possible to share best practices, to create a communication network where we could share best practices, where we could support each other, um, where, you know, multi-directional. So maybe nodes in the network start to create educational materials that are open source and used by the network and around the world, right? You don't even have to be in the network because it's all open source. Um, but the network gives legitimacy and it lends strength. Uh, you know, the the one of the core principles is that we are more than the sum of our parts. And it's collaborative, right? And again, this is different from the world that we're coming from. We're coming from a world which is competitive. We're coming from a zero-sum world, right? Where in order for me to win, you have to lose. The world that we're going to, and this is like a paradigm shift that is possible now is where we are more than the sum of our parts. And, and that's, you know, as much as possible, show, don't tell. And that's what the node network is, right? Each node in the network is stronger and more powerful and helped by other nodes in the network being stronger and more powerful and helped, right? And again, that is contrary to the world that we're coming from. And that this is like, this is, again, back to that leap of, civilization from zero to one if we're just fighting each other all the time and we're competing in a zero-sum game on a global level 
this is it. We're not going any higher than where we are. But if we could work together and we're trying to show that, right? We're not, we're not just saying this on this podcast. We're trying to actually show it and demonstrate it. Um, so anybody could join, you know, reach out to, to, to me from our Bitcoin, find us on Twitter or social media, my first Bitcoin underscore, um, write us uh, monthly spaces the last Friday of every month. Um, and, and join the revolution, join this network and, and, you know, find out more about this on the website, mepremerebitcoin.io. There's a tab there. I think it's called global network, uh, where you could just read more about what this, what this network is, what the nodes are. Um, in addition to that, we are also creating, uh, unconferences. So independent Bitcoin educators unconference. Uh, we had the first one in El Salvador in November. The next one will be in Madeira, February 29th. So that's before Bitcoin Atlantis. And that is a place for these frontline educators to come together, right? We have telegram groups and we have spaces. We have uh, online general assemblies where we share best practices and do all this. But there's also value in, in doing it in person, physically around the world. So we did, this is the first international one that we're doing in Portugal. We'll do it in the United States again uh, in July before Bitcoin 2024 in Nashville. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm so excited. El Salvador is the focus, the mission is the world. And 2024 is when that is not just a slogan, right? That is, that is, what you could see you could don't trust verify you'll see it this year um so yeah i'll, I'll see to adam i'm sure he's got plenty to say here too no and it's just you know it's I'm, I'm aware of all these things happening but it's like you know it's hearing them again and then you know john john shared you know we're more than the sum of our parts and then that reminds me oh wait i have to tell this other awesome story <laughs> <laughs> you know and and I want to, I want to, you know, everyone looks at the, the organization, at least some of our external donors and, and sponsors, and they said, wow, what you guys have achieved and the time you've achieved it is, is, is seemingly impossible. And we always say, well, if it's impossible, how did we do it? And they're like, this is awesome. You know, like we, so we, we have built such alignment now within the organization and outside the organization. There's this, there's this magical moment where everyone uh, sees the future that we're trying to build and the present that we're, we're actively engaged in and, and things just start to accelerate. And I want to tell a, a story about we're more than the sum of our parts. Um, you know, Brad, I think you and I have a mutual friend, uh, Teruko. Yeah. Yeah. So I just interviewed her a few weeks ago, actually. Okay. So this is so cool. And, and this is the stuff that I get excited about. It's not fundraising. It's not, you know, num the numbers and stuff, the score takes care of itself, right? Focus on the input side of the equation and the output side takes care of itself. But, but I want to tell the story of how Teruko and I, I met. She's awesome. We, we met at the Global Bitcoin Summit in Nashville. This was an incredible event thrown by the Human Rights Foundation and hosted by the awesome guys like Rod and Matt and uh, Harry over at Bitcoin Park. And it was this collection of 100 leaders from over 55 countries who were coming together to solve real world problems, like UI, UX things, and 
philosophical things and educational things. We're all coming together and there's just this awesome, you know, uh, uh, there's this awesome one plus one equals three moment that comes from conversations like that. So I give this brief presentation on my first Bitcoin at the summit and Teruko and I get a chance to talk after the presentation. And I guess, you know, she was the one who translated the Bitcoin standard into Japanese, which is incredible. And so she says, Hey, you know what? I had no idea that you guys were this global movement. She says, I want to help translate the Bitcoin diploma into Japanese. Is, is that okay? I said, yeah, it's open source. So, you know, jump on in, we'll connect. And, and so, you know, she, she sends me a message. We go back and forth. As of this morning, I checked in. They had completed chapter one of the new Bitcoin diploma, which is something we've been working on over the last two months. So they completed mm -hmm. chapter one. There's a team of eight people working on the translation, right? Um, you can go check out our GitHub. You can see all the languages we have that we're translating. There's 21 plus English and Spanish. And these were all requested from communities or teachers in their respective countries, in their respective languages. And the next thing she's going to do is she's releasing a new podcast series based on the new diploma that she's translating in February. So for anyone listening, if you want to go to uh, X or Twitter or Zwitter or whatever we're calling it these days, you can go to Folger Ventures J. That's the Folger Ventures Japan. Twitter handle, and you can follow along and actually receive the Bitcoin diploma in podcast format in Japanese as soon as, uh, you know, this month or, or, or very soon, very soon after. Um, so I think these are the conversations I get excited about, right? This is the kind of exponential or multiplicative growth factor that comes from creating an open source universal tool. Um, and just inviting good people to collaborate with you. And um, I have stories like this from every country, almost every country, you know, now around the world. And it's just, uh, this is the thing that lights me up. This is the thing that gets me really excited about the future. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, I, I had Teruko on uh, a few weeks ago, and we did talk a little bit about the upcoming podcast. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. I think, uh, yeah, there's definitely a language barrier here in Japan. So we need uh, a lot more good Bitcoin material translated into Japanese. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Um, I think you mentioned that in, uh, in uh, a lot of parts of Latin America, people are open to trying new things. I would have to say Japan is uh, not that open. Um, <laughs> they do have a, a, a fascination with things from overseas, but uh, not very open to fundamental change. Um, in many ways, Bitcoin has been around here for a long time, but uh, never really progressed much beyond like just a, a speculative thing to trade. I think people don't keenly feel problems with the monetary system. Um, so yeah, I'm very curious to, to see uh, if, if that, uh, like you said, if if uh, helping people ask the right questions can lead to them seeing the problems a little more clearly and uh, and seeing the solutions as well. Um, I know we're pushing time, so uh, um, yeah, we'll we'll wrap up uh, 
we'll wrap up here soon. But uh, do you have any any thoughts just before we go on uh, countries that are maybe not exactly in El Salvador's situation where the people, uh, they don't feel their needs so in such a dire way, but uh, but still definitely do have a, a need for Bitcoin. Do you have thoughts on um, like educational approaches in countries like that? Uh, yeah. So your question is uh, how to how to have successful Bitcoin education in the places where it's needed most, um, or or even in the countries where it it's not felt like it's needed much. I guess my question is oh, like, is it going to be the the countries that are losing the most in the current system that are going to get Bitcoin the quickest, or uh, could maybe some countries who are doing relatively well right now still uh still still see the need for it without uh having to be dragged kicking and screaming into it yeah i th- i think that bitcoin is different for everyone right uh and on a larger scale it's different for different countries so the i think that bitcoin adoption will speed up everywhere but for different reasons depending on the location right so in a place like nigeria Bitcoin adoption is going to speed up more out of need. In a place like the United States, Bitcoin adoption is going to speed up more out of want, right? Mm-hmm. And the need versus want is really important because I think the people that need Bitcoin will are the ones who are going to bring the new world to fruition, right? The ones that want Bitcoin are actually trying to hold on to to the old world, right? Like the United States wants Bitcoin. People are going to buy the ETF. People are going to invest. People are going to make more dollars, right? But that's like, I I think maybe that is the, I'm just thinking out loud here, right? That that That's the, the difference between those two. Whether you are trying to escape fiat or whether you are trying to have more of it, right? Mm-hmm. And people that are trying to have more dollars they don't actually get it. Maybe they have more dollars, but it's like, why do you want more influence in a dying system, right? Wouldn't you rather just build something better? And that's the difference between the need and the want. So the Nigerias of the world will lead the United States of the world. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And that'll certainly be exciting to see. Adam, John, any uh, any final remarks before we wrap up here? Uh, you've been really generous with your time. Thank you so much. Uh, no, no further remarks from me, Brad. This was a ton of fun. Thanks for having us on. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank you. And just again, uh, our website, myfirstbitcoin.io, Twitter, myfirstbitcoin underscore. Uh, we also have a a geyser campaign. Uh, you could also donate on the website. We are, as Adam said, pretty. Uh, I mean, almost hostile to corporate sponsors, right? Hostile to the wrong ones, friendly to the right ones. Um, and and a lot of our, you know, in order to do what we do, it it comes from, it comes support from everyone. So every sack counts. Uh, and come to El Salvador. Come to El Salvador, see this for yourself, join the Node Network, start a revolution wherever you are. And I'll put those uh, links in the show notes as well. And hopefully, uh, hopefully I can get to El Salvador too before uh, before too long. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
Okay, what'd you think of that? I was struck by their optimism and the general optimism in El Salvador that they talked about. I do feel personally optimistic because of Bitcoin, but like I mentioned, it's hard to feel optimistic about Japan or the world in general these days. It doesn't seem like we've been able to fix many problems in the past few years or decades, and the trajectory is too entrenched to change without serious disruption. But I think Mi Premier Bitcoin's results speak for themselves. People are hungry for the tools to escape financial oppression. Expose the problems, present a possible solution, and people can figure out whether it's relevant for their own lives. I hope we see that model take off in Asia too. I think there are a lot of the same needs, like people not being able to save and move their money across borders cheaply and securely. So I think if there are people willing to be the teachers, there will be no shortage of students. For Japan, I worry that people aren't ready for a disruptive solution, so they'll wait, hoping things will get better on their own, and by the time they realize they need to take action, they'll be in a much worse position. But we'll see. If you have any insights into where this type of curriculum could be particularly effective in Asia, please let me know. I'd love to hear about it. Follow the show if you don't want to miss an episode. And if you'd like to help me out, a rating or review or sharing this episode with a friend would really go a long way. In any case, let me know what you thought. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you again soon.